Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our series on horror vacui, or the, the fear of the void, the fear of emptiness, also sometimes paraphrased as the statement that nature abhors a vacuum. Uh, this is a topic that has many different faces we're going to touch on in this series. It's, uh, it, of course, has manifestations in the world of physics and the physical sciences uh, and, and figures into the history of how we conceptualize space and the vacuum. Uh, but it also has uh, manifestations in the world of psychology and in the world of art. In the last episode, we focused mainly on art, and we're going to pick up with talking about art today. Yeah, and uh, Joe, I don't know if this was the case with you, but I also found this to be, this was a really fun topic to research, but also at times a slightly challenging one, due in part to just how frequently the term horror vacui is invoked in papers, sometimes yes. at the drop of a hat. Yes, this happens with us sometimes with, with like you are searching for uh, writings about a concept, but instead what you will find is a lot of writings that use that concept as a metaphor for what they want to talk about. Right, right. So it, it seems to be the case that if you want to find something that has just via the, the invocation of the term, at least a, a tangential connection to horror uh, vacui, then you can find it. <laughs> For instance, uh, if you want a paper that invokes um, horror vacui and Spanish horror icon Paul Nashi, well, you can do it. I found three of them with, with just really? a really quick search. Yeah, um, and you know these are papers where it's not it's not the core um, 
thing they're going after. But at some point or another, they're going to use this term to describe a particular artist or that artist's work or perhaps even, you know, counterexamples to what a particular artist was doing. So it, it seems kind of unavoidable, especially given just how, um, uh, you know, how common this aspect seems to be to human perception and creation, the idea that, you know, you have minimalism, you have maximalism, and, you, you know, the various spaces between. Yes, this is all true. And I at least encountered another difficulty with reading about Horovakui, which is that I've noticed the term is used very differently, uh, sometimes with a sort of pejorative connotation and sometimes without. And for an example of this, I was watching a lecture about Horovakui in the history of map making by the historian of cartography, Chet Van Duzer, former guest on the show, by the way, and I'll talk mm -hmm. about uh, uh, his writings on this subject later in this episode. But this lecture invoked a definition of Horovakui by a scholar named Braxton Soderman. And in this case, uh, Soderman, I think, would not use the term Horovakui to apply to, in general, works that are busy or highly decorated. I mean, there are tons of things that would be very busy, highly decorated, you know, densely detailed works of art that would not get this term. Instead, he would use it specifically to refer to the motivation driving cases where you would judge busy art or busy design to not be a thoughtful and effective design choice. So the quote goes, Horovakui is the fear of empty space that results in the overmarking of visual space, excessive decoration that threatens to overwhelm what is being decorated, the stuffing of gaps in sejura with further representation. Uh, so it's not just anything that's busy or crowded, but it's things that are busy or crowded in a kind of compulsive, uncontrolled way. Okay, okay. So uh, so what uh, Soderman is saying here then would be that something like, um, I don't know, the works of Irving Norman or one of these other artists we discussed in part one who are uh, trying to make some comment or create art that in some way invokes a sense of chaos or disorder um, it wouldn't necessarily apply to what they're doing because it is a, a like a definite choice, but it might apply to the outsider art or folk art of, say, Howard Finster. No, I, I don't think he would necessarily apply the term to them. I mean, I don't know what he personally would mm -hmm. apply it to. I think he's just saying that wh whoever is using this term, however you're using it, it would be applying to things that you think are excessive or overmarked, whatever that means to you. Okay, okay. Yeah, so he he's making a distinction then between... Uh, and, and, of course, bowing to um, individual interpretation, that one view of an artist might be that they are uh, thoughtfully invoking, say, a sense of chaos or disorder mm -hmm. uh, by filling you know, all the margins with, with the images of such disorder. While, on the other hand, there might be another artist out there where it is more of a, a compulsion. It is more of, of a situation where they have perhaps a lot to say, too much to say, and are trying to like, fit it all in. Yeah, possibly. Or, uh, of course, it wouldn't just have to be representing, um, you know, chaos or disorder. It could also be representing richness or anything, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, whatever the reason is for the infilling of, of uh, detail. Uh, it would be something that is done on purpose or done for a reason rather than something that is done compulsively, maybe driven by a kind of anxiety about leaving blank or uniform space. Uh, and, and that latter sense, the one driven by Horovakui, is in this definition one that detracts 
detracts from the effect of the piece, one that, quote, threatens to overwhelm what is being decorated. So again, I think this author would probably not use the term to refer to things that are busy or crowded uh, as a result of a like well-considered deliberate choice by the artist or designer. It would refer to things where the infilling seems haphazard or unwarranted or ineffective. So while I am usually quite partial to busy, detail-rich artwork, uh, there are examples I can think of where uh, I can look at an artwork or design choice and say, yeah, I think this just looks like compulsive behavior that seems driven by a kind of discomfort with blank space. And one example I would agree with uh, characterizing this way is cited in the same lecture by Chet Van Duzer I mentioned a minute ago. It's the practice of line filling in medieval manuscripts. And so maybe mm. this will help illustrate. So uh, this, is, uh, this, this page I want to show you, Rob, is from a manuscript known as Walter's uh, 113, which is a late 13th century Latin Psalter, Psalter meaning a book that contains the uh, biblical book of Psalms. And it's from the region of France that was then Flanders. Now, you know, I love my medieval manuscripts with zany margins. I want donkeys playing trumpets. I want <laughs> armored war rabbits locked in battle with naked men riding centipede dogs. I want it all. But even with that predisposition, I think I, I would be critical of what we see in some of the pages of Walter's 113, such as the one cited by Van Duzer. And this is where there are illustrations intruding into the very lines of the text itself. So the issue is that when a line of text does not stretch all the way to the margin, when it does not fill out the column, uh, the artist here, I don't know if it was the copyist or the rubricator or somebody else, literally fills in the rest of the line with a rectangular illustration of some kind. So it might be a mouse head or just some vines with red and gold leaves or a big old peahen. Uh, I like these types of illustrations, but this does seem kind of excessive to me, like it would actually make the text harder to read and detract from its effect. And it just kind of makes the page feel cluttered and like there's no space to breathe. It, kind of going back to our episodes on the history of the paragraph and the, the importance of blank space in prose text. Uh, I would agree uh, with the caveat to our eyes reading across the centuries. Well, yeah, I'm talking about my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, to, to, as a modern viewer looking at this, uh, yeah, the peahens and the strange dog creatures are a bit distracting. <laughs> um, not, not that I can read the actual text anyway, no. Right. <laughs> well, well, to connect uh, again with the uh, paragraphs episode, I mean, here we see very little spacing between parts of the text itself. Mm -hmm. Like the, the text is also very crammed and crowded in. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, maybe to the the original creators of this page and the original intended readers of this page, like this is opening things up. They're like, hey, you, I'm giving you some space. That's what the dog is. That's what the, the bird with the human head and the dunce cap is about. <laughs> that is a good bird. It reminds me a bit, um, and this is coming back to like, you know, cinematic um, um, examples uh, and, and parody of, of cinematic examples, but um there's an episode of Futurama where 
uh, Zoidberg's uh, uncle, Harold Zoid, an old-timey uh, 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 cinema director who made like mm. silent holographic pictures. Um, yeah, he's directing a, a new film, and he's at one point he's, he says, people, people, please, just because it's a dramatic scene doesn't mean you can't do a little comedy in the background. Um, <laughs> And it's, you know, it's referring to, I guess, the, the, the you know, to, to modern viewers, the often busy nature and the sort of frantic nature of, say, old silent films. Oh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, on this, uh, like, uh, Walters 113, a person might uh, feel that this counts as horror vacui in the critical sense, in the sense of overmarking or excessive decoration that sort of uh, threatens to overwhelm that which is being decorated. But to come back to my point about usage, it seems that while some authors use the term exclusively in this sense, like a in some sense, a critical statement or a critical statement about the motivation driving certain design choices, it's also sometimes used more generically without a spirit of criticism that I can detect and would just be descriptive, like it would refer to any art or design without a lot of blank space, even if the uh, author making the statement believes that such a design is effective or thought thoughtful or well-considered or beautiful. So uh, I, I guess this can create confusion when the term is invoked about whether it's being used with a critical connotation or not. Is it just say, it, does horror vacui just describe an artwork that is busy and filled in with detail to all the edges? Or is it a class of motivation to create certain artworks of this type, specifically artworks that are not as good as others? Now, um, you know, d discussing, though, the, the way that sometimes the term is used to depict, um, uh, you know, a primitive impulse or, a, a, or to describe a quality of more ancient forms of art versus modern forms, um, I do think it's helpful to look at, at other examples from other parts of the world and other times. And I was trying to think of, like, well, what's a good one that's, you know, a little bit different from, from what we've, we've looked at in the first episode? And I kept coming back to uh, uh, Tibetan art particularly you know, t Tibetan uh, uh, Buddhist art, that uh, I imagine when I even m mention uh, this, like certain images are coming to mind. And these images that come to mind may be indeed be like very full, very um, complex pieces that indeed take up an entire given space. So if we're applying the term here, it would be in the descriptive sense, not in the critical sense, because uh, I think you and I agree these artworks are amazing. Right. And, and, I, and I, to be honest, I didn't find uh, any sources out there that were really invoking this term to describe Tibetan art. So I'm not, I'm not attempting to jump to the defense of it or anything because the attack would be, I think, entirely imaginary here. But, um, but it's interesting, I think, to look at, at work that you might see as, as, you know, very full or even very busy and sort of describe, like, why is it like that? And, uh, and, and what does it have to do with the original purpose and context of a given work? So uh, a little background, um, a Tibetan style of art began to develop on the Tibetan plateau during the 10th century, this following a formative era during which Buddhism took on a, a form in Tibet most in tune with the religious needs of the people, their pre-existing uh, shamanistic traditions, and much more. Uh, and this is discussed in, in great detail in an excellent book that I have on the shelf here by Robert E. Fisher titled Art of Tibet. Now, I'm not going to get super into the different forms of Tibetan Buddhism or even the full variety of images, but suffice to say that while not all examples of Tibetan Buddhist art invoke a feeling of maximalism, some of the most famous examples of sculpture and especially monastery wall paintings do tend to kind of overpower you with a sense of cosmic abundance. 
Yes, and many of them seem to me like they are not only overflowing with detail, but overflowing with uh, sort of different levels of focus. Like there's a mm-hmm. lot of different uh, layers of detail that, you know, things you, that are kind of like zoomed out versus zoomed in, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, you do feel like there's a sense of zooming in and zooming out. Um, uh, many pieces will have like a kind of central focus and it can almost feel like some sort of a of a map. It can almost feel like some sort of, uh, and this is where we get into some of the actual purpose here, some sort of uh, educational uh, document that indeed there is information that is being relayed here. Uh, and you know, th- this is one of two important factors to keep in mind uh, regarding why these images are so, again, cosmically abundant. Uh, first of all, as Fisher points out, esoteric Buddhism like uh, Vajrayana Buddhism, was and is a complex system. Uh, One comparison that I've I've seen elsewhere is that you might think of these forms of Buddhism as a kind of Buddhist super science, a kind of advanced spiritual technology. Hmm. Fisher points out that it essentially was was a means of accelerating the path toward enlightenment, condensing the work of eons into a single mortal lifespan. And at the same time, there, there was still like a sense of urgency to the practice, Fisher stresses, because ultimately you're dealing with like the trajectory of the human soul. So there was a great deal to be taught, a great deal to guide one through, a great deal as a learner to absorb. And it was more than a written text or even a, a robust monastic tradition could do on its own. Uh, Fisher writes the following, quote, The need to harness the myriad powers and to organize the parts of this vast system into a manageable whole required a large and complex visual system of support and gave rise to the ritual instruments and images that have given the Vajrayana its distinctive flavor, as well as the huge array of deities representing the tremendous range of powers and practices. Okay, so in some sense, the detail-rich nature of a lot of this artwork could be related to the uh, sort of the vastness and complexity of the belief system underlying it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're, we're dealing with various images and objects here that are not necessarily merely uh, decoration, but also ritualistic and instructional. So the image may be like full or abundant or, or even, uh, you know, considered busy because there is a great deal of information to relate and support via the image. And I guess, you know, you can, you can look to various examples in other systems. Like anytime there's a lot of information to put in an image, be it a map um, or, you know, to, to sort of bring it into this realm of the unreal, I'm reminded of the, uh, the, the maps, the many wonderful maps that have been created over the years for Dante's Inferno and, um, and, uh, and and the other books in the Divine Comedy, where there is a fantastic physical realm that has to be created there, but it's also just loaded with information and loaded with all sorts of stuff. And it can be very helpful when you're, say, reading the Inferno, but also if you try and fit everything into the map, it could conceivably be overwhelming. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. 
Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Now, elsewhere in the book, uh, Fisher makes a great point, too, about the role place has in all of this as well. So we're dealing with centuries of tradition here. And and um, and, and while I don't want to devalue the, the vast size of the Tibetan Plateau, because it, it is enormous, or the biodiversity of the region, because it, it, it contains numerous ecosystems, but uh, individual works and monasteries are going to be generally tied to particular locations within it. Mm-hmm. As Fisher points out, the interior of a Tibetan monastery is elaborate uh, with full wall paintings that, quote, transform those rooms into spiritual environments which surround and even overwhelm the worshiper with large expressive displays of the many Buddhist worlds. And he stresses that this is all in stark contrast to the world outside the monastery, typically defined by the, quote, often barren, windswept Tibetan landscape. 
Um, that's interesting. So he's saying that in many of these places, if you were to go outside the monastery, you'd be greeted with an image of the world that is quite beautiful, but maybe not busy with detail or busy with lots of little uh, things populating it. It would mm-hmm. be often uh, a very, I don't know what the word is, a, a kind of smooth topography. I mean, I guess not smooth because it would be mountainous, but you know, not a lot of uh, forests and cities and so forth. Right, yeah. Like I included uh, an image here uh, of the Tibetan Plateau, and it's a particularly gorgeous uh, view. And, and uh, at the same time, I'm sure that one could probably find individual vistas uh, that don't feel as open in the, the Tibetan Plateau. But uh, but I, I feel like this kind of uh, I, f- I feel like this has a certain logic to it. Like the idea that uh, first of all, going back to the previous comment, like on one hand you have information encoded in the work, but also it has to do with this awe-inspiring transition out of the mundane world and into the inner spiritual world of the monastery or the temple. Mm. So I, I think on one hand, it's it's important to, to realize that the contrast between the empty and the full might be lost in an analysis of, of a work. You know, if you're just viewing it in isolation on a page, um, on a screen, or even in a you know museum setting. Um, and, uh, and I don't know, this is more of a, a tangent, but I wonder how we might think of this in terms of ancient versus modern or even you know, just pre-modern in general versus modern creations. Because if the world outside of a particular experience is by one definition or another minimalist, then perhaps it makes more sense for the work uh, itself, the inner work, to present a contrast of uh, maximalism. Likewise, if the world outside the monastery is by one definition or another maximalist or busy, then perhaps we crave the quiet, the simple, and the minimal uh, within the experience of place or painting or film or musical composition. That's very interesting. I could see that. So if, yeah, if you maybe you live in a, in a busy city center, the sacred space you retreat to, you would want to have a lot of uh, empty or uniform space in it to give you a sense of, of rest, maybe. Whereas if you live in a more pastoral environment, you might want to retreat to a sacred space that is full of just a busy, rich detail and complexity. Yeah. And at the same time, though, I realize it, it might still be entirely subjective because I, I can easily imagine, say, um, you know, an individual living in the big city and they're going into a, uh, a sacred space or museum space. And like, what is their relationship to the world on the outside? Is 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 it is it busy and uh, and abundant or is it is there an emptiness to it? And therefore, they want something more full on the inside like the sacred space should give them an energy that they feel is lacking in the world outside. Uh, like, I, I, like I say, I guess it could go either way, depending on what an individual's uh, view of the mundane world is. Yeah, that, that, that's a really interesting observation, though. Uh, I, I wonder about that now. Yeah, like take the various Meow Wolf uh, locations, for example. You oh, know, like yeah, those okay. are Those are certainly kind of uh, maximalist experiences. You don't go in. I mean, you know, it's... It's not just an overabundance of images. There's, you know, various artists, various styles, uh, and so forth. Um, it's not just wall to wall. But generally, I, I have found when I when I have, in the one that I visited, I left feeling like I had experienced a lot. That's interesting because I, when I went, I found it uh, kind of restful as well. I think maybe it has yeah. to do with the dim lighting in there, or the, there there are plenty of lights, but they're not bright white light. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and the kind of, uh, soothing sonic atmospheres. I, I don't know. Yeah. So anyway, uh, you know, I bring all this up more or less just to you know, raise additional questions and bring up additional examples, but we'd obviously love to hear from folks out there who have 
thoughts on all of this related to their experiences uh, in museums and sacred spaces, etc. Now, I mentioned earlier that I was going to come back to uh, Chet Van Duzer, uh, and this relates to Fear of the Void in Art. I came across some work by previous show guest Chet Van Duzer on the role of horror vacui in map making. So uh, if, if you didn't hear that uh, episode from a few years back, Chet Van Duzer is an American historian of cartography, and he came on the show several years back to talk about why and how cartographers of the past would so frequently add sea monsters to their maps. And one possible explanation for the proliferation of sirens and slithy marine serpent kings out in the deep water is horror vacui on the part of the map maker. This would be the version that's not just merely descriptive of something that's filling in details, but a, a description of a motivation on the part of the artist or map maker that uh, there's an abhorrence for blankness that goes in the case of maps beyond just the creation of monsters, but to all kinds of extraneous infilling of stuff in the watery corners of the page or in the, the deep uh, middles of continents on the page. And so I was looking at a digital curation of examples on the Stanford Library's website. This is for the Barry Lawrence Ruderman Conference on Cartography. And there are some explanatory materials by Chet Van Duzer. So he writes that uh, despite the fact that some previous scholars had had cast doubt on whether Haravakui was ever uh, a major influence on mapmakers, he argues that whether you frame it as a positive desire for excess decoration or a negative aversion to blank space, it seems pretty clear that Haravakui of one kind or another was an important pressure in the design of European maps from the 16th to the early 18th century, at least for some cartographers, because this was not universal. He also shows many examples of maps that were perfectly content to leave vast areas blank, often the, the interiors of continental spaces unknown to the map maker or vast ocean spaces. Now, Rob, I thought the, the first example Van Duzer selects that we would look at here is the Typus Aurorum uh, Meritimarum Guinea Longren. And this is uh, a map created by the Dutch cartographer Jan Huygen van Linschoten, who lived 1563 to 1611. Uh, I believe this map is from 1596, and it depicts the South Atlantic and the western coast of Africa. Now, the ocean takes up, it looks like at least three quarters of the map, but the ocean here is absolutely overflowing with stuff <laughs> to the point that it's kind of funny to look at. There are inset drawings of the, the mountains on St. Helena and uh, Ascension Island. There is a compass or multiple compasses. There is a drawing of three ships being visited by a sea monster. I, I can't tell if the sea monster is attacking the ships or just saying hello. Rob, maybe you can render a judgment on that illustration in a moment. <laughs> but there is also lots of absurdly florid lettering on the names of places. Will you just look at this uh, Oceanus? Uh, what I can't even read the word. It's so there's so much swirling on the letters. Get get let lethipacus or something. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot going on here, and the, I mean, it almost looks like you you've gotten you've got pop ups occurring on the map. Yes, <laughs> that you need to close out so you can see the the rest of the ocean here. That's very yeah yeah. You want to click the X's, uh, uh, <laughs> but uh, let's get a good look at this sea monster now. 
it looks kind of like it's a giant green fish with red fins and the head of, I don't know, what would you call that? Kind of like a pig calf head? Yeah, yeah, it's very mammalian. But it's got the angry eyes. It's got uh, it's got attack eyes. And <laughs> is is it attacking the ships or is it just kind of flopping around for them to look at? Not quite clear. Yeah, I don't know. It looks it looks I don't it looks a little sweet to me. Like it's just kind of uh, minding its own business. But maybe no, no, wait. I'm looking at it. Depends how you okay. It depends how you look at it. At first, when I looked at this this particular monster, I thought its head was sort of to the side, and now I see it as it was intended. Yes, it does look angry. And looks more like a pig, whereas the way I was seeing it at first, it looked more like an otter. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I saw that you were looking at the more zoomed out image. That does look more otter-like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but when you, you see it a little closer, you can tell, yeah, it has this kind of uh, yeah, still mammalian, but angry and perhaps threatening the ships. But OK, this first example, there is just so much illustration in the ocean here and just a lot of inset text, the boxes, mm-hmm. uh, boxes of text. I think they're called cartouches, maybe just like elaborately decorated boxes with like those Baroque museum frames illustrated around them that uh, have, you know, they say something in them. Uh, now, let's look at another map. This is one that uh, Vanduzer selects that is called A New Plain and Exact Map of America by Robert <laughs> Walton, uh, who lived 1618 to 1688. I think this map is from 1660. And uh, let me flag a, a little lol here at the word plain in its title. Because, again, it's just it's so much stuff. The oceans are filled with ships, sea monsters, random blocks of text. The border of the map is stuffed with illustrations of landmarks and explorers and uh, what the mapmaker believed were the representations of clothing of various native peoples. There is even sort of a guess at the coast of Antarctica, though I want to say Antarctica was not discovered until the, the 19th century. This is just a random line of of coast south of Cape Horn that is labeled unknown land. So it's just sort of a guess. There's probably some land down here. Wow. This yeah, this map is a lot to take in. Um, I wouldn't say that it's particularly pleasing to the eye. No, uh, it has the feeling of a publication, like um, in, in the sense that uh, they said, "Well, we've got some extra space on here. Let's get some more content on this map." You know what it looks? It kind of looks like. Uh, did you ever have those highly informational placemats when yes. you were a kid? <laughs> yep, yep. You're gonna eat your spaghetti on this uh, pl- new plain exact map of America. Yeah, this would work great as a placemat. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, but Van Duzer writing of Walton's map says, quote, it is tempting to think that the map's busy appearance attracted and held the eyes of his customers and thus helped increase sales. So that's an interesting consideration. It's possible that a desire to sell maps could have driven some horrorvacui in cartographers because maybe a map seems more valuable if it is filled with lots of illustrations and text, maybe it seems less valuable if the places where you, you know, you don't really have any geographical information to add are just blank. Yeah, I can see. It's kind of like with the illuminated manuscripts we were discussing earlier. I mean, if you were paying for one of these or commissioning one, you might say, hey, I thought this thing was going to be illuminated. Where is the uh, illumination I paid for? Um, yeah, so and there's a lot of content added here. And yet at the same time, the north part of America has a fair amount of white space, trapped white space in it here. 
Oh, it does. Yeah, that that's the the interior continent. In fact, some of the other examples uh, elsewhere that uh, Van Duzer cites to show cases where mapmakers were clearly not afraid to leave blank space. A lot of that blank space is like in the center of the Asian continent. So they'll represent, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Europe and Africa and like the southern coast of, of the Asian mainland. And then like all up inside there, it's just a vast blankness. They just didn't know what was there. Yeah, it looks like in this particular map, they added some text under the north part of America, but they just didn't have even enough to fill. They have a few pictures of animals, but ultimately there's clearly a lot lot that's unknown uh, at the time of this map's making. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. 
Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I want to look at one more of Van Duzer's examples. The next one is a map by Henri Abraham Chatelon called, uh, I'm not sure how to say this French, but I think it's like Carte Très Curieuse de la Mer du Sud. Uh, this is Amsterdam, 1719. So this is more like an attempt to, this is not quite a map of the entire world, but it is a map of a lot of the world. So it has North America, South America, half of Africa, half of Europe, and then the eastern part of the Asian uh, continent. And then it's got a lot of ocean in it. So it's got the Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean. And once again, there's all kinds of stuff sort of crowding in from the edges. In fact, Rob, I would almost say this adheres to the exact inverse of your rule about uh, about blank space in like typesetting newspapers where, you know, white space was OK if it's sort of connected to the oceans at the outer edge of the page. You just don't want mm-hmm. trapped white space here. All of the, the illustrations and boxes and cartouches seem to be just pouring in from the edges of the map, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it's it's. It's it's very interesting to look at, and, and yeah, and, and I'm sure a lot of this has to do with the, the the clearly visible trade routes that are marked. Like you don't want to throw your copious amounts of illustrations on top of that. Better, but they work well to fill in these areas where ships are not uh, navigating between the continents. Yeah. And I really like Van Duzer's observation about this map. Quote, the great profusion of inset maps and scenes along the northern and southern edges of Henri Chatelain's 1719 very curious map of the Pacific show the cartographer's strong desire to avoid empty space and more specifically to conceal his ignorance of what lay in the extreme northern and southern reaches of the world. The South is essentially tiled over with inset maps that include ethnographic scenes. In the North, note that he conceals his ignorance of northwestern North America with a series of portraits of explorers. (laughs) That's a very clever trick. And honestly, I don't know if I would have noticed it if Van Duzer hadn't pointed it out. Sometimes an abundance of extraneous detail can be used to distract the audience from the absence of significant or useful detail. In other words, busyness can be used to hide emptiness. So on a map, this would mean that you might be less inclined to, you know, pipe up and say, hey, wait a minute, what islands can be found in this region of the Pacific Ocean? Or wait a minute, what is the shape of the northwest coast of North America? You might not notice to ask that question because the map doesn't just sort of like go blank in these places. Instead, it is plastered with like Magellan and Vespucci heads and (laughs) what appear to be uh, somewhat inaccurate drawings of Mesoamerican pyramids with human sacrifices happening all around them. So it's just adding in these illustrations in places where the author or or the map maker uh, doesn't exactly know what they should depict in an informational sense in the map itself. Yes, this close-up that you included for me of the uh, the human sacrifice scene is quite uh, uh, ridiculous and monstrous. Uh, like I see an individual with a face on his stomach in the background as well. Is is that what it is? Yeah, that's confusing. I, I don't know what that means. Yeah, I mean, when he shows up, you know your illustration is is 
is well off the mark when it comes to realistic depiction of cultural practices. Is this going to help me navigate the Pacific? I'm not sure. (laughs) But this will come back in a minute. Maybe that's not the point of a map like this. Um, Though I think it's important to, to dwell on this for a second because, of course, this technique of hiding the lack of significant or relevant detail by filling the void with irrelevant or extraneous detail is not just used in maps. This is actually something I I notice in verbal rhetoric all the time. Mm -hmm. It is like a common trick of persuasion and argumentation. Uh, For example, you can see, see it in courtrooms. If you don't have very good evidence to cite in support of your case, instead, you just say a lot of stuff. You just try to rapidly... Uh, lay out a bunch of facts or claims that sound vaguely on topic. And if you say enough stuff fast enough, it could be hard for the jury or the audience to stop and analyze each thing you said and think, wait a minute, does this actually prove what you're trying to prove? Is Does this lead to your conclusion? Instead, like you use a blizzard of statements to create the impression that you have made an argument. You hide the core vacuity of your case behind a Hieronymus Bosch painting of talk. Hmm. Perhaps it's kind of like with the, the map versus the painting. It's more detectable when there's like a definite purpose or intended purpose to the answer. Yeah. Uh, because it's like one thing to come up to someone and say, hey, uh, what is art? And then you might get a really rambling response, but you kind of should, right? Yeah. Uh, but if it's more like, hey, um, if you come to your boss and be like, what are my duties for the coming uh, month? Or uh, yeah. how was my performance over the last quarter? If there are a lot of um, uh, add-ons and pop-ups in that particular answer, then yeah, it feels like you didn't really get a clear answer to the question. Yes, yes. In that case, the boss would be papering over an actual problem in the workplace with a bunch mm-hmm. of extraneous detail, essentially painting like Magellan heads and Christopher Columbus heads over the part of the map where you should be getting detail about what you're supposed to do. Yeah. But uh, anyway, to, to come back to maps specifically, uh, Van Duzer argues that eventually the cartography of Horovakui fell out of fashion. Uh, by the late 17th and early 18th century, you start to see a decline in this impulse to fill every corner of the map with stuff. And that seems to coincide with a decline in decoration generally and an increasing trend of seeing maps purely as utilitarian scientific instruments where it would just be, you know, you just want the information necessary. These are the navigation lines you would use. These are the coastlines. So I look at all this and I, I sort of interpret it to mean that, you know, in, in European maps of centuries prior, if you had a map of the coast of South America or something, it's maybe more likely that this would be a kind of decorative educational or status item to mm. uh, maybe to stimulate the imagination or maybe uh, in a more profane sense to show off your wealth and worldliness or something like that. But by the early 18th century, sea maps were increasingly viewed simply as tools for navigation, in which case you might not want a lot of extra decoration all over the place, kind of like you wouldn't want the marked face of a tape measure to be covered in all kinds of elaborate illustrations and words. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great point. Reminds me a bit of timepieces, particularly uh, wristwatches, Mm. where, you know, you'll you'll see plenty of examples of very functional timepieces that are all about giving you the exact time. And in other cases, the the timepiece might be a little more stylistic, sometimes so stylistic that it interferes with your ability to accurately read what time it is. Yes. And it's not to say that either approach is wrong. They just have different um, 
slightly different intentions and uh, a different focus on the actual information that is being presented. So this makes me think that when there is a case of horror vacui as a motivation, just like a desire to fill in blank spaces with stuff, you know, there can actually be a lot of uh, sort of sub motivations to that motivation. It might be because you are trying to make the thing you're creating appear more valuable. Uh, maybe you're trying to attract the eye of a buyer. It might be because you literally just want to contain more information. It might be because you want to disguise a lack of information of a significant sort. Or maybe it's just because you enjoy being artistically expressive and you want to fill lots of things in with, uh, you know, just kind of exciting detail to stimulate the imagination, all of which could essentially manifest as the same thing. Yeah. But how about you personally, Joe? Do you think maps today should have more monsters on them? I think Google Maps specifically should have more monsters on it. Uh, like, <laughs> you know, because that could be that could be filled in dynamically, right? You know, the monsters yeah. are roaming around. That would add an interesting uh, level of puzzle and obstacle to your your daily uh, boring navigation tasks. Uh, I got to get to so and so's house or the post office or whatever. But there is a leviathan in the way, and uh, I maybe I got to take a new route. Yeah, yeah, I mean, just speaking of routes, yeah, we ha- we we use these various GPS uh, powered mapping devices when we drive around, and I often find that if I uh, stop at a light or a, a traffic sign, uh, that's when the pop ups come for me. Pop ups for like sub sandwich shops and so forth. Uh, maybe if I could pay just a little bit each month instead of getting the sub the the the, the submarine sandwich pop up, I could just get a random monster from uh, from from the history of maps. Some sort of strange pig faced Shrek eared monstrosity rising up out of the the highway. Yeah, why go to the sub shop when you could go be devoured by a cockatrice? Yeah, or at least give me the ability to report it. If enough people are reporting the thing, then there must be something going on. Okay, does that do it for today, for part two? I believe so. Yeah, I think we've we've filled this one into the margins here. Uh, But we'll be back with a third episode on the topic. So, hey, uh, check back with us then. Just a reminder that core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind air in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do listener mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form monster fact or artifact episode. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. 
What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.